Today is Wednesday, May 18th, 2022, and you are listening to New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS, and this week as well, your fill-in host for the Line Opinion Panel, as our host Gene Grant is fighting off some crud, and we hope to see him back soon, but right now he is under the weather, and for this particular episode, we're going to start with the Line Opinion Panel, a reminder, our most recent group made up of Jessica Ansures, the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus, also Tom Garrity, a line regular and a head of the Garrity Group PR, also Kathy McGill of New Mexico Black Voters Collaborative and the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. And it is one of the big news stories across the country still this week that is the leaked, uh, apparent leaked Well, it was leaked, but of an apparent ruling of the Supreme Court of the United States that would overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, we know there's a lot of time and a lot of things can change, but there are a lot of things that people are gearing up for in terms of impact. And really, New Mexico might be at the center of a whole lot of stresses and pressures if that draft ruling becomes reality. In the United States, we have states around us that if that happens would immediately default to to state laws which are either currently or in the process of being changed to make abortion legal except under very limited circumstances and so that means there could be a huge influx of patients coming to New Mexico where our healthcare system is already really tasked and also very centralized so not in those border communities that are near some of these states like Texas where these changes would be felt so heavily. We're also hearing about how some providers may even head to New Mexico if all of this falls out as it appears to be headed. So wanted to talk about all that with our line opinion panelists and what New Mexico needs to be doing. Also how prescient the law that we passed, the legislature did last year that closed the loophole so that abortions were guaranteed in New Mexico. For those who support that, uh, there was a lot of talk about how it wasn't necessary, or if it was necessary, who knows when. Here we are just a year later where this is all coming to a head. So here now again, you'll hear myself filling in as the host of this conversation with our line opinion panel. Hello and welcome to our line opinion panelists this week. I'm Kevin McDonald, executive producer, filling in for Gene Grant, who's under the weather. Happy to be joined by Jessica Ansuras, news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus. Great to see Catherine McGill back with us as always. She is founder and director at New Mexico Black Leadership Council, amongst about half a dozen other things. And welcome back to the line regular Tom Garrity from the Garrity Group PR. Thank you all for being here. And we are starting with one of the most controversial stories circulating right now. Of course, that's the leaked draft opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court's official decision won't be made until June or July, and it still could move in a different direction, but the leak is sparking conversations about what would happen 
if that ruling were overturned. Abortion access would remain legal in New Mexico because of a 2021 law passed by the state legislature and signed by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. Now some other states are scrambling to make a similar move, but it might not be in time. And Tom, just curious, can you, uh, could you have imagined when there was the debate over this bill in 2020 and then 2021, would it actually pass that it would become so relevant, so prescient, so quickly? Yeah, you know, definitely, you know, when uh, Senator Kerry Hamblin out of Las Cruces, you know, uh, helped to introduce the legislation uh, back in 2021, uh, you know, I think a lot of people were thinking, okay, it's just more of a political power play than anything else to, you know, shore, to shore up the bets. And of course, this was right off of uh, you know, the uh, President Biden's victory over uh, uh, former uh, President Trump. And uh, so there was a lot, you know, the the anxiety on both sides and the division was so high that a lot of entities decided that uh, government entities decided they wanted to try and hedge their bets just in case the Supreme Court did something. And lo and behold, uh, the Supreme Court did. Yeah, and, and Jessica, you down there in Carlsbad, many uh, cities closer to the border are going to be the tip of the spear on this, like a lot of places. There's already talk from Planned Parenthood or Rocky Mountains about adding uh, clinics in border towns. Uh, we know if this all plays out as we think it's going to right now, that we will be basically surrounded, minus Colorado, uh, with abortion bans. So there's going to be a lot of influx here and COVID has laid bare a lot of our healthcare shortage issues. Uh, is there a concern about the strain uh, that you're feeling uh, down there? Actually, yes. So when we started reporting on what Texas was doing, its moves to ban abortion in that six week period, after that six week period, there was a lot of talk about seeing the population in need of abortion services move into New Mexico, which was considered, you know, a state friendly to this type of um, service. But what we started to see really was a bigger question about access. You know, we talk about New Mexico, um, abolishing its 69 act um, that would criminalize abortions, but we don't talk about the actual services we have in place now, which when you think about it, out of the 33 counties in New Mexico, only three offer that service. And most two of them are in central New Mexico. So we started to dive in a lot um, when it came to access. And that's just one of the challenges um, for the state when it comes to abortion services. We're really talking about staffing shortages, about um, financial um, challenges, especially for those seeking this type of service. We, Kathy, probably speak to this a whole lot more than I could, but um, we see disproportionately impacted people of color when it comes to access. So um, there are still a lot of questions about how New Mexico will um, weather its neighboring states banning abortion services, Oklahoma included, um, is my understanding, in the coming year or so. Yeah, and Kathy, if you would, yes, please expand on that a little bit more about how this issue is, is uh, even more uh, of a flashpoint in communities of color, poor communities, and what more you think uh, might be coming our way in terms of legislation around this uh, as we see that strain uh, build up. So a couple of things for me, I think um, what I had to come to when we woke up and heard the news about the leak of the majority opinion from the Supreme Court was that life as we know it is no more. And 
Uh, we could have never imagined that something like this would happen and don't know who leaked the information, but what it has um, brought back to us is the fact that this is a move perhaps more to uh, states' rights and to fear of federalism and hoping that, that things will be um, adjudicated by the states and all the trigger laws that are in effect just remind me of what we were dealing with in the 1950s and the 1960s uh, about limiting people's rights and having the states uh, be able to choose who could do what. So we know that people of color will be adversely affected. And when people just simply talk about the fact that you now have would have to travel to get an abortion, so who has the means to do that? And so it brings into mind all of these morality issues and, um, you know, in order to laugh, to keep from crying, um, the meme that was going around about a bunch of dogs, uh, probably mostly male dogs, discussing feline health care. And we, of course, know that, that there are people here in New Mexico, everywhere, that uh, actually think this is a good thing. And this is all going to carry over into a midterm election. Uh, and I'm just curious what you guys think about what impact this issue will have in our midterms coming up. Does it help one party over the other in terms of turnout? Let's, let's just start there. Tom, what do you think? Well, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the topic of abortion is uh, is something that really mobilizes the uh, extremes of each of the parties. Uh, so, you know, progressives definitely a lot more, uh, you know, focused on this as an issue. We'll get them out to the uh, to the polls just in the same way as the uh, re religious right or the conservatives are going out for the Republican side. Uh, the unintended consequences that I think what we could see is, is that um, you will have uh, extremist candidates potentially elected on either side uh, because of the influence of this, you know, uh, landmark, potentially landmark uh, case from the Supreme Court. Uh, so, you know, I think that the impact that we'll see is really more on the primaries, as you said, uh, and we'll really have to see how that impacts the types of candidates uh, that both the Republicans and the Democrats send out into the general primary or general election. And, and Jessica, you're obviously down in a more conservative part of the state. What do you right. think this, what, what is this issue in terms of mobilizing to the vote in 2022? So as you noted, we're in a conservative part of the state. We've got some very red voters um, in Southeast New Mexico specifically. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is these counties down here already starting to pass resolutions, naming their communities um, pro-life or um, life-saving communities. And so you, I think that's a, that's a big flag to our Republican um, candidates out there that they want to see them take a stance, um, a stronger stance and use strong language when it comes to abortion itself. Um, I do know that in the governor's race, right, our front runners, um, Ron Ketty and Rebecca Dow have already come out with a statement about how they feel about this whole thing. But I think that voters in southern New Mexico, southeast New Mexico are really looking for Republican candidates to um, take this take this topic back um, for it to be a, um, a moment for them to really get that message out there in what has been a largely blue state. 
And we'll come back to the governor's race in a second, but I just want to stick with you a moment on uh, your congressional representative there, Yvette Harrell, who is, is kind of done what we're hearing a lot on the national stage in terms of uh, the, the main messages I have seen are outrage over the leak and not so much about what the decision may be. Uh, and just curious, do you see her changing her tactics all considering I myself on the west side of Albuquerque will now be voting in right. your in that district, right? Maybe not changing so much as dialing back. I do think that those new lines drawn with redistricting have probably caused her to pause um, and reconsider how forcefully she wants to approach the issue. But you are right. I think that those um, re those newly drawn lines are going to force her to um, perhaps take a, a softer stance on the issue if she wants to continue to seek that seat. And, and Kathy, back to the governor's race here. Um, as, as Tom mentioned, this can kind of push candidates to the extremes. Uh, how do you see these uh, already a crowded field, one of which the candidates uh, is really a one issue uh, candidate on this very issue of, uh, of abortion um, uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. So uh, what do you see the candidates and, and if they go full bore in this mode, can they make their way back into the center at all in a general election? I think it's going to be challenging. Obviously, you know, people are, as you mentioned earlier, hedging their bets. Uh, to try to get the pulse of the constituencies. But what we know is that most of the voting public agrees with having Roe v. Wade be the settled law of the land. So, uh, you know, politicians um, who may be opposite to that, you know, it depends on what they feel their base is and if it's strong enough to get them over the finish line um, in a primary situation, they just really have to try to figure out like what's the pulse of the people that they are playing to. We know on the Democratic side, they're uh, going to be full bore that, that we want to keep Roe versus Wade. But for uh, Republican candidates, they're really going to have to hedge their bets. And just about 15 seconds left, Tom, real quick. What's the bump for uh, Governor Michelle Juan Grisham in her reelection, being able to point to that law that she got passed last year uh, and that overwhelming support in public opinion polls that Kathy just mentioned for the upholding of Roe versus Wade? Yeah, clearly for the governor, uh, this is a topic that will motivate her base uh, to get out and vote. And that's uh, probably the biggest bump. The question is, when we get closer to Election Day, how much of this will really still be uh, top of mind for all the voters? Because we've seen so many times how issues can come up uh, within a moment's notice and change the direction of a campaign. Great. Thank you to all of our line panelists. We'll be back here again in our virtual roundtable in about 10 minutes to talk about the largest wildfire in the country burning right now here in New Mexico. Going to switch to some business news and discussion now. Word came out uh, last week that Virgin Galactic is delaying commercial space flights out of Spaceport America here in New Mexico until at least next year. And that had a huge impact on Virgin stock prices last week and has a lot of people again asking if our investment as a state in the spaceport is going to pay off. And so we wanted to get the line opinion panelists thoughts on that as well. And you may remember part of that delay for Virgin is because after their launch, they gained national and international headlines 
about this time last year uh, with um, Richard Branson, CEO of Virgin Galactic, going up on uh, a space flight, and that was ahead of Blue Origin, their big competitor, but that the FAA realized there were issues with that, and they had to work out some things that apparently went wrong during that flight. And uh, Virgin also says they're having supply chain issues and uh, problems with hiring that are leading to these delays. But again, now looking towards 2023 for commercial space flights and a lot to dive into here. So once again, our line opinion panel. Welcome back to our line opinion panel. One final time this week. Virgin Galactic is announcing a delay in its plans for commercial space flights. The company says supply chain and labor issues make 2023 a more feasible goal. And this project obviously has major implications in southern New Mexico, Jessica, although maybe not all the way down into your area in Carlsbad. But how much of a blow is this for that part of the state as one of the big economic drivers? Right. So we look at it as a revenue generating operation. And so when you talk about um, it from that standpoint, we are talking about a blow. We, you know, we invested in this um, idea of space tourism for not only this vision of the future, but also for the boost it would give to our economy. So when you see it struggling, you just know that there are going to be implications for us um, at a revenue level. Is part of this, Tom, that that Virgin seems to still be, in terms of that economic driver, the only thing that people talk about? They reported $93 million in losses in the uh, last quarter. Uh, But I think that there's a lot else going on there that may be helping with that economic situation that we're not hearing about. Do you agree with that? Uh, Oh, most definitely. And by means of disclosure, uh, my firm does a lot of work in the economic development arena, which uh, includes parts of the spaceport in a peripheral. Uh, But when you look at the spaceport as a whole, it's it's much more than Virgin Galactic. Obviously, Virgin Galactic is the, you know, the, the premier tenant as far as uh, you know, getting the most attention. But there are other missions out there. Spin Launch is a, a fascinating hypersonic centrifuge uh, that you know, shoots uh, satellites into low orbit. Uh, there are a couple of other very interesting missions out there as well. But I think you know, really looking at it from a New Mexico perspective, it's you know, how does the spaceport fit into the larger um, you know, uh, microcosm of the community of uh, aerospace. And when you look at all of the aerospace influence in Albuquerque at Sandia National Labs, uh, the influence that Los Alamos has as well, and a number of the private entities, uh, you know, it's really uh, probably the, the most visible part. And we just want to be able to see those vertical launches like Cape Canaveral, but that's just not how the spaceport is set up. It's set up to be much more of a mission-driven uh, operation as opposed to a, the giant spectacles. But uh, but they're doing well in, in spaceport and a lot of different missions taking place out there. And it was about a year ago that we had that first launch where Richard Branson himself went up uh, and really not much since. And in part because of uh, revelations after the fact that there were some problems on that flight and they had to work with uh, government officials to sort of get things in order. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin, they've already conducted four successful passenger flights to space uh, since last summer. 
So what are we to make of all this in terms of Virgin's viability, Kathy? So I'm, I'm just going to say that, um, you know, I, I, I hate sounding like, oh, you know, why are we doing that or get off my lawn um, kind of thing. But um, I, I didn't know anything about the hypersonic centrifuge, Tom, and I'm, I'm glad for the education around it. Um, but it, it just seemed a bit like uh, waiting for Godot. Um, at the spaceport, like, you know, is this really ever going to happen and learning more about the losses and obviously Virgin Galactic is, is out there as the, as the premier tenant. So maybe we need to know more about what these other tenants are going to do and how uh, we're going to get a return on the $220 million investment that we made as a state. Um, but I think for a lot of lay people who are not working in that economic development space, they're looking at this like space tourism, uh, $450,000 and half a million dollars for someone who's very wealthy to go up into space doesn't mean a whole bunch to most people. Yeah, it's a high price tag. We've talked about that a lot. And again, worth reminding folks, right, Jessica, that this was a project funded by taxpayer dollars. And so there is an expectation of some success here to uh, repay that uh, investment, right? Yeah, so we, uh, we I think Kathy kind of hit the nail on the head there. For those who are not insiders or who aren't paying attention and who are just reading the headlines, they are looking at um, the the setback or the delay in the commercial operations until 2023 as, you know, as a, as a shrug. Um, for those of us who kind of have some insight into what's happening, it can indicate, it seems to indicate problems or trouble, especially when, as you said, Kevin, you look at what Blue Origin is doing. But I think Tom um, was very insightful when he pointed out there is more happening there than we tend to know about. Um, maybe the bigger question is, how do we do a better job of talking about this new industry um, with your everyday average New Mexican um, and educating them about the future benefits, question mark there, but hopefully um, to this, this whole project. Yeah. And again, despite the delays uh, and that competition from uh, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic maintains that its Delta-class rockets will be the best and most sustainably designed tourism spacecraft. Do you think that's enough of a talking point to help make up the difference? I'm not exactly sure what a sustainable uh, space vehicle is, or what that means, but what do you think, Kathy? Oh, I don't know. Um, Elmer J. Fudd keeps coming into my head. I'm, you know, I own a mansion and a yacht. I don't know. Um, I think that most people don't know. And so I'm hoping that we just get more education about what is happening. And if it's going to be the best, let, you know, I, I need to see it, you know, because right now it feels a little bit about theater, a light theater of the absurd. Yeah. Tom, what about you? Can you pick up on that? Um, not necessarily on the theater of the absurd, because there are a lot of different activities that are taking place out there. You know, it's it's they're caught in a catch-22 um, because there are a number of different missions that are taking place out there. It's like talking about what Sandia National Labs does or Los Alamos. You know, there's a lot of different missions that are out there that they just behind the gates, they just can't talk about. And but I agree, uh, both Catherine and Jessica bring great, great points that it needs to go just beyond. Well, trust us, there's stuff going on out there, and so they really have to find a place. I think all these uh, entities that have these, uh, you know, secure operations is find that middle ground where you can provide just enough interest or information to let people know that this just isn't a waste of taxpayer dollars. Uh, you know, to get that information out without giving away all of the uh, all of the reasons why, uh, you know, they might be doing missions there. 
And that's a great reminder too, uh, Jessica, I'll turn to you real quick on this as we close out, but the transparency issue has been something around Spaceport as well because these lease agreements and things are uh, not public for the most part. And there are proprietary secrets in there and that's the arguments that's made, but do you think there needs to be a stronger push to actually be able to see the dollars and cents that are coming in and going out uh, at the Spaceport? I'm always going to say yes to transparency, <laughs> no matter what it is. Um, so yes, the answer to that question is yes. I think um, when we, especially because people tend to associate the taxpayer investment that we made into this as uh, the the back, backbone of this industry in New Mexico, we want to see what is happening. They want to know that there will be some sort of um, growth um, that that return on investment that Kathy mentioned earlier. Um, when it comes to transparency, we all realize that there are industry industry secrets that will need to be kept. Um, but that does not mean that there aren't certain items that shouldn't be shared um, or brought to light. I think that it's fair to ask to see um, the tenant leases to have a at least a general understanding of the investment um, that is that is. Um, being put into this uh, Spaceport America. All right, thanks. That's all the time we got. Uh, appreciate the line panelists as always, and be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics we covered this week. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Don't want to let this last conversation go by. You have no doubt seen in the headlines that New Mexico is using some non-recurring federal dollars to expand child care assistance for thousands of New Mexico families. This is a big deal. Basically, if you were 250% below the federal poverty line, you were eligible for this assistance. And with this change and this commitment by the governor, Michelle Luan Grisham, and the state, that will now jump up to 400%. So again, a lot more assistance for Folks needing to find ways to pay for childcare, which can be super expensive and a big burden to families across New Mexico. Uh, but again, the big question is what to do after that federal money runs out as it is non-recurring. But this will definitely have a big impact, at least in the short term, and we wanted to find out more about it. So our producer, Lou DeVizio, caught up with the Secretary for Early Education and Childhood Development, that is Elizabeth Kraginski, to get the lowdown. And we want to bring that to you here now. Again, we had some of this in the show, but we're able here on the podcast to bring you that full conversation. And we'd love to get your thoughts on this idea and what a difference you think it might make for families in New Mexico. You can drop us a line here on the podcast or hit us up on any of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Let us know what you think. New Mexico is increasing child care subsidies that are already the most generous and broadly available in the United States. Thanks for joining us, Secretary Kraginski. New Mexico instituted these policies, or different policies last June that brought down child care costs for low and middle income families. These new waivers are going to help families lower those costs even more. Um, who's eligible for these waivers and how much could they save? Uh, thank you, Lou. And um, the families who are eligible for this waiver are families who are working or going to school and need um, help of paying for childcare, up to 400% of the federal poverty level. For a family of four, that's 111,000 annual in gross income. 
So what we've done is we have said the cost of childcare is out of reach for most families. And so we have waived parent co-payments now until next year. And again, under Governor Lujan Grisham, we hope to make universal access to universal early care and education uh, available to all families in New Mexico who need it. Uh, how would you go about doing that? You said that you hope to do that in the future. What would that look like? You know, we're going to need to continue to make the investments in New Mexico families uh, and to into the child care providers who support them. We know that in New Mexico right now, we have many communities where there is not enough available care for the families who need it, especially for infants and toddlers and even school age children. So while we continue to support the families now who have access and are using childcare, we also announced last week that we are gonna help build more supply of childcare across the state. Great, uh, um, how did you determine the income eligibility levels for the subsidies? We looked at, um, you know, last year we extended the eligibility up to 350% and families could stay on that assistance until 400%. But the governor said, no, we need to do more for families now and families at those levels still need help. I mean, childcare for an infant in a high quality center costs $1,500 a month. Most families can't afford that. So our ability to use our federal relief dollars and under Governor Lujan Grisham's leadership to say, this is a critical a support that families need right now in New Mexico so they can take those dollars and invest them in their family, build their own family wealth, maybe build towards buying a home, supporting their child uh, in other ways. So we're very happy that we could make this uh, announcement and make this change for families in New Mexico. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, the, the federal COVID-19 relief money, that's where a lot mm -hmm. of this funding is coming from. That runs through July. What happens after that? The relief dollars that we're using actually are available to New Mexico until uh, September 30th, 2024. Uh, we have right now just said, Let's take this the next year at a time and see how many families need the assistance. And we hope that these dollars will extend um, as long as till September of 2024. Uh, but we will at least uh, continue waiving parent co-payments until June of 2023. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have that here. The, uh, another expansion starts started May 1st, runs through June 2023. Waiving uh, child co-pays for households at four times the poverty line. You mentioned that, and it had previously been 350. It's that caught my eye just 400 times or four times, I should say, uh, the poverty line. It, is the poverty line too low? Does that make this difficult or do you just calculate those regardless? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think we think that the poverty line is too low. Uh, and so, you know, families making 111000 of gross income, you know, having to pay $22,000 a year for their infant to receive care, you know, that is, that is not, um, that is not sustainable. Um, that is going to put them behind in being able to save for their housing, for other things that they can do to support their family's long-term growth and development. So we believe that this investment is critical. We want to sustain these kind of investments in New Mexico families. Governor Lujan Grisham really knows that fa when families struggle to find care or to pay for care, uh, that that puts stress on the family, that puts stress on the relationships. And we know that when there's stress in a family, in a home, that impacts the development and the overall well-being of the young children, but also of the, the, as the family as a whole. So these are the kind of policies that put families and children at the center. 
Understood. Uh, now, how can people acquire these copay waivers? Is, do they have to seek them out themselves? Is there an outreach program or some sort of automatic mechanism in place? Great question, Luke. Uh, we have child care assistance offices all over the state. They can also go to our website and click on Am I Eligible? And right there, families can fill out the application, provide documentation, and somebody will follow up with them to you know, make sure that all the paperwork is in. You still do have to be working or in school and how much care you get access to is driven by how much you need. So um, we're excited to be able to offer that. We're also gonna be holding enrollment fairs around the state, uh, May 14th and May 21st. Um, we'll be releasing some of that information so families can come to those sites, get enrolled, have their eligibility determined, uh, and start getting assistance, um, real real money back in their pockets to support their families in other in other important ways. Okay. Uh, now, do you have an estimate on exactly how many families this expansion would cover? Like a, a number? We're, we're, we're estimating around 30,000 families across New Mexico could benefit. We're seeing, I just talked to the staff today, we had 500 um, applicants come into the MI eligible just this past week. Uh, so that's exciting. We know there's families right now enrolled in childcare that uh, are struggling to make those payments and are considering whether I have to pull my child out of childcare or how am I going to juggle because I don't know that I have the resources. So we're hoping that they're going to learn about this and they're going to come in and get the assistance they need. And we're also excited that because we're the only state in the nation that has based our childcare rates on what it costs to deliver that care, that our childcare providers are going to have the revenues they need to focus on quality, uh, to focus on their staff, and to paying their staff commensurate with the value that they're giving uh, to the children and the families and to our, into our communities across the state. Now, we're seeing uh, staffing issues in a wide range of fields in New Mexico. I mean, you name it, they're probably short-staffed. And last week's announcement also expanded grants to child care centers, subsidy to child care workers, uh, pursuing professional training. Uh, does the state need more of these workers, too? Absolutely. Absolutely. Early childhood educators are in high demand, and that's why we also released the student success application to our higher education institutions so that students um, enrolled in their early childhood teacher prep programs, their infant uh, family studies programs can get access up to $2,000 per semester in FY22 and uh, um, in the fall of 22 and the spring of 23 to support things like transportation, rent, other costs that early childhood educators have as they're trying to work full-time and also go to school. So we're excited, again, using federal relief dollars to enhance, uh, help accelerate, hopefully, their completion of their AA or their bachelor degree in early childhood. Great, great. Thanks so much. It sounds like great stuff. Uh, thanks, uh, Secretary Griginski, for your time and your information. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. But we are hard as at work, as always, on our next episodes for you. And, of course, the show, Friday nights, 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS or Sunday mornings at 7 a.m., whichever you prefer to catch it. Or you can watch segments from the show on YouTube and Facebook, and we put them up on Instagram for you as well. Try to share them through Twitter. So wherever you are, we try to be as well. We hope that helps you find our content. If you think it's really important, we work hard on it each and every week. 
and do us a favor on that front and you can help us out in return. Be sure to like and review this podcast. It helps with that algorithm. That is so important and we really appreciate it. We thank you as always for listening. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.